0: In her research, Jennifer Lau attempts to understand the development of anxiety and depression in children and adolescents using a variety of methodological approaches. In this podcast, Dr Lau talks broadly about depression and anxiety and then discusses her approach to research.
1: What is neuroscience? It's the scientific study of the brain. And I guess the other thing to say about it is that it can happen at many different levels. So some people might look at the chemicals in the brain and how they interact and how they affect the functioning of certain circuitry. So by circuitry I mean lots of regions that are joined up together act towards underlying our behaviour whereas some people might actually study the function of those regions so there's different levels of neuroscience and then still others might sort of look at the genes that affect brain chemicals or brain function so together it's the sort of joint discipline of studying the brain.
0: How do you approach neuroscience?
1: Because of my background in psychology, what I'm actually interested in is the sort of function of certain brain regions and how they sort of map onto psychological processes and specifically how, not abnormalities as such, but I guess individual differences in brain function might tell us something about the extreme forms of human behaviour, such as anxiety and depression.
0: Are there a wide range of individual differences in brain behaviour?
1: Yes, yeah, I mean, as with most measurable aspects of human activity, there are lots of individual differences, and people sort of who fall at the extremes might sort of manifest extreme behaviors, which we then call disorders
0: right, and your research is in depression and anxiety
1: yes, that's correct
0: what what is depression?
1: Well, we all feel sad at some point. Sometimes it's a response to something that's happened in the environment, and sometimes it's just an internal mood state. So depression is the extreme form of that sadness. So when it's characterised by loss of pleasure, hopelessness, low mood that's persistent for every day, for much of the day, for at least two weeks, then we call it depression. And it's also accompanied by lots of secondary characteristics, so loss and appetite, feeling tired all the time, just basically feeling blue, which you can't snap out of.
0: It sounds very subjective.
1: Yes, I mean, one of the things about depression is that it has to be characterized by those two things, which are loss of pleasure, anhedonia, and low mood, dysphoria. And both of those two things rely on a sort of subjective appraisal of your mood state. But at the same time, it is observable to some extent by people around you. So, for example, the secondary characteristics like loss of appetite, feeling tired all of the time, loss of energy sleep patterns being affected, those things are, they are sort of Subjective in that they're happening to the individual, but they're also observable by people around you. And also sometimes when you get depressed, there are effects on your social behaviour, so you're less likely to sort of want to socialise. And so it is other people can kind of see it too. And I think one of the things with diagnosing it in children is that, well, one of the questions is can children actually, do they have the cognitive maturity to say, I'm actually feeling very, very low? And in which case, sometimes you need parent reports of changes in behaviour that sort of complement a child's subjective I feel sad.
0: Is it very difficult to observe depression in children in comparison to adults?
1: I mean some of The characteristics are slightly different so irritability is something that you would see more in children as a kind of substitute for for hopelessness because hopelessness in some ways, so that's loss of hope about the future, in some ways that you sort of need to be cognitively quite mature to be able to appreciate that and I think with children that doesn't really manifest as much but instead you get this sort of changes in mood like irritability.
0: And how common is depression in children?
1: Well, I guess that also depends on your definition of depression. So some people are sort of, who take a very strong categorical view of depression and who also require that parents and teachers and the child all agree on depression. With those sorts of definitions of depression, it's probably about less than 1%, but then in adolescence that's when it really, really increases, so from the age of probably about 12 to 13, you get this sudden rise in the rates of depression, particularly among females. For a diagnosis, probably up to about 10%, and if you were just to assess depression through questionnaires, so people with high symptoms, it could go up to about 15% as well.
0: And what are the causes?
1: Well, as you can imagine, it's quite a complicated disorder. There's no one cause as such. There are lots of risk factors, so factors that increase risk for depression. So one obvious candidate are our genes. So we know that depression runs in families. And we also know that identical twins are more similar in their risk for developing depression than non-identical twins. So you can attribute that increased similarity to the fact that identical twins share more of their genes. But if you were to sort of quantify how much genes contribute to depression, it would only probably be about 30%, which is relatively less than something like schizophrenia or autism. So then that then leads to the question of what what other factors could be important. And so the other sort of obvious candidate, quite a general one, is the environment. And more and more, it seems that the two sort of interplay. So genes create a susceptibility towards making you react badly towards stressful life events, for example, so that when a stressful life event occurs and you have the genetic susceptibility, you're much more likely to develop depression. But then knowing that genes and the environment increase the chances of developing depression, you then want to know what the actual risk mechanisms are. So do genes affect certain regions of the brain that then make you more susceptible towards the environment? How how do those differences affect psychological processes? So so it's kind of you can see the causes at multiple levels.
0: So what are risk mechanisms?
1: Well I guess it's processes by which a risk is expressed. So when I say genetic risk mechanisms, I mean what are the intermediate steps that lead you from having a genetic susceptibility to having depression? So the mechanisms by which that is expressed. So does it influence brain chemicals that then influence the functioning of certain circuitry in the brain that then influence psychological processes that make you susceptible towards environmental stresses that then leads to depression. So it's it's the sort of mapping of the processes.
0: Is it possible to observe depression scientifically then, in the brain?
1: No, not really. What you can say is you can take a group of depressed individuals and you can take a group of non-depressed individuals, and you can give them a task, a task that you think will tap into differences between them. So, for example, showing them angry faces or fearful faces or sad faces. And then you can sort of see how the brain responds towards those, in particular regions that we know are involved in emotions. And then you can say that for one group there might be greater activity or less activity. But that isn't predictive of depression as such. It's just a group difference. Okay. So it's not diagnostic.
0: And what type of experiments do you do with children?
1: Well, at the moment, I work on sort of fMRI, and I suppose psychology as well. So so most of the tasks that we do, most of the experiments that we do are to do with their responses towards emotional events or emotional stimuli. So if you were interested in the brain and you wanted to do an experiment with imaging techniques, fMRI, most of the research at the moment put the subjects into the scanner and then show them fearful faces, for example. So they're quite sort of basic experiments as such, just exposing them towards emotional stimuli.
0: So what are the difficulties, and particularly the ethical considerations, of causing anxiety in children?
1: Well, there are quite a lot of ethical considerations. So in some ways it's quite difficult because what you want to do is you want to do an experiment that you think will reliably show differences between anxious and or depressed versus healthy controls but in some ways because of the definition of the disorders those tasks are necessarily going to be involve emotions but then the ethical concerns about sort of exposing them to emotional stimuli there are ethical concerns so for example fear conditioning is where you learn the association between an aversive outcome for example a shock and a neutral cue and it's been shown that perhaps there are differences in how anxious people sort of condition to things so for example they might be quicker to form certain associations or they might be slower in learning those associations so in other words even though a neutral cue has stopped being paired with an aversive outcome they will still have a fear response towards that neutral cue even for a long time afterwards So for most of the adult studies, you pair a shock with a tone, for example, and then look at their fear response towards the tone. But you can't shock a child, you can't give them a shock. And so you have to try and think of something else that will enable the conditioning process to take place So you have to choose something that's aversive, but is also acceptable ethically. So, for example, those sorts of situations. Or one of my other experiments, what we want to do is to see whether or not there are differences in brain function during social rejection. But again, there's sort of all these ethical considerations as to whether or not you should expose children towards a simulation of a social rejection situation.
0: How does a child develop fear of a scary face, for instance?
1: Well, I suppose because scary faces, there's an evolved significance about them. So it's been reliably shown now that if you show people fearful faces, it activates the amygdala. So obviously we're all able to kind of control that fear. It's a minimal fear. Even children show it. So it's a mild fear response, but it is a fear response that has sort of evolved over the years.
0: So in children, would these fear responses be more acute than in adults who could learn to be rational about them?
1: Yes, that is actually a good point, because the prefrontal cortex, which is the frontal regions of the brain, are less developed in children, or it's developing in children and throughout adolescence, in fact, and, and and young adulthood. That sort of region of the brain, one of the functions of it is to kind of control or regulate our emotional arousal. So in adults, that manifests as a kind of learning to be rational about seeing a fearful face, whereas with children because of the fact that that region is still developing they might be less better at sort of regulating their emotions and so that is one of the sort of developmental differences that that you see in brain function in between children and adults and I suppose sort of in real life it manifests as you know children being scared of ghosts or things hiding in their cupboards whereas adults are able to well to some degree rationalize it a bit better.
0: Are there some children who do rationalize it quite well?
1: Yeah, so again, there might be individual differences in that respect, so I would say probably yes. And in fact, one of the theories of anxiety and depression is that there is this imbalance between the prefrontal regions and the limbic system, the amygdala. So the amygdala is responsible for basic fear responses, and the prefrontal regions kind of regulate that emotional arousal. And so if you have a lot of amygdala activation, but much less prefrontal top-down control, then you might see a situation where you're not able to rationalise your fears. So that is one of the theories of anxiety.
0: And what's the difference between depression and anxiety?
1: Clinically, they're quite different. So anxiety is an exaggerated fear response. So it probably evolved as a kind of means to regulate our behaviour when we perceive a threat, so to fight or to flight, basically. But people with anxiety disorders have this kind of chronic response towards a perceived threat. So they have these fear responses, even though there might not be a threat there. So even in the presence of safety, so it's things like worrying all the time, their physiological symptoms, so feeling shaky, feeling dizzy, panic attacks, panic symptoms, but they're also cognitive symptoms as well, so worrying about it, feeling agitated, tense, so... That's anxiety. That's the clinical presentation of anxiety. Whereas with depression, as I said before, it's a more kind of, in some ways, it's less physiological. It's more cognitive and elaborative. So you ruminate about things. You're hopeless about things. It's it's a mood thing.
0: That leads me to assume that there are two very different ways of treating depression and anxiety.
1: Yes, that is correct. Although, in some ways, the drug treatments overlap for both because the other thing to say about anxiety and depression is that we think that genetically they might share the same risk factors. So the same genes that are involved in depression are also involved in anxiety. And so some of the biological correlates are also quite similar. So for both, there seems to be disturbance in the serotonin system or the levels of serotonin. So in that respect, the drug treatments do sort of overlap across the two but because clinically they're quite different and because cognitive behavioural therapies or so psychological therapies might target some of the cognitive risk factors, so those are quite distinct for the two.
0: Can you have purely physical causes of anxiety or depression?
1: Yeah, so you, there are definitely differences in circulating brain chemicals between anxious individuals and depressed individuals versus healthy individuals but, and I suppose you could say those are physical, but they kind of translate on a psychological level too, so they might make you more reactive towards stressful things in the environment.
0: So is it possible to train oneself to be less anxious?
1: In some ways there is growing evidence now that we can sort of alter some of the biases that are involved in anxiety, so for example, One thing about anxiety, one of the cognitive risk factors is that we interpret, or anxious people interpret, ambiguous situations in a more threatening way. And same with depression too. So for example, if you're walking down the street and you see two people across the road and they just walk straight past you, anxious or depressed person might be more likely to say, it's because... They're blatantly ignoring me. They're being rude. They don't like me. Whereas a healthy individual might say, "Oh well, maybe they just didn't see me, or they're in a you know they're in a rush to get somewhere." So those are sort of cognitive factors or psychological factors that also are associated with anxiety and depression. And there's growing evidence now in adults that you can sort of modify some of those biases. So by exposing people to think in a certain way. So for example, training people to think well, maybe it's that these people that you saw across the street are actually busy, that you can sort of change those biases that might affect mood state as well. And, yeah, so that's a sort of growing area at the moment, but it hasn't really been done with children or adolescents yet.
0: Does your own research inform any of this clinical practice?
1: Indirectly, I suppose it does, yes. I mean, all research does, or we wouldn't really be doing it. So it allows us to understand... The risk mechanisms that are involved and by understanding some of these risk mechanisms so for example these interpretation biases we can sort of try to alter them in psychological therapies so in that way yes and in terms of the sort of more biological side of my research so understanding the effect of genes on brain function I suppose just the fact that understanding that genes are not deterministic, that there's a chain of events that happen, I think it allows us to sort of target these intermediate steps that then informs clinical practice.
0: So one could have an increased genetic susceptibility to depression, but never actually get depressed because there aren't any other factors that cause it.
1: Yes, and also the other interesting thing is that certain positive aspects of the environment can buffer that genetic susceptibility or there are studies that seem to suggest that. So for example having high social support might kind of decrease the chances of having depression even though you might have a genetic susceptibility and stressful life events.
0: So if one has experienced depression or anxiety out in the past, are they more likely to experience it again in the future?
1: Um, yes, yeah, so both of those disorders are episodic, so it means that you are likely to have episodes at a future stage, so they recur.
0: Are there techniques that one could employ to limit the possibility of a recurring episode?
1: Yes, so I suppose one of the things about cognitive behavioural therapy is that it tries to target those cognitive factors that are involved in the pathology of anxiety and depression. And by targeting those, it equips you with a resilience for dealing with stress better when they happen again.